1: there's a big crash in the peloton now a number of riders have hit the deck Vengegaard is held up but is on his feet one of the Ineos grenadiers is down uh, right in the center intermarche circus 1t as well but there's suddenly a lot of riders down i don't know what happened there but that was a big crash on the radio course there they're saying they may slow down the race Okay. You can just see the, the doctor doing the, the concussion protocol there, to the, the Ineos rider. The race has been neutralized. Uh, Just one of the many dramas that you see on the Tour de France, but that was a particularly ugly one uh, when so many riders were brought down, there was so much of a hold-up and so many injuries. uh, It's been one of the most talked-about incidents in this Tour de France, which uh, sees two cyclists, Jonas Vingegaard and Tadej Pogacar, Uh, separated by just 10 seconds uh, in their race for the yellow jersey. Vingergaard holding it at the moment. Uh, Sam Buley is a multiple-time Olympic medalist for New Zealand. He's competed in his fair share of Grand Tours, spent countless hours on a bike, nursing some nasty blows of his own. Nowadays, he is a DS for a pro team, Israel Premier Tech, and has scored himself a more comfortable job on this tour as well, inside the NBC studio, analysing the cycling for the major network. It's brilliant to chat, Sam, how are you doing? Uh, how did you land such a cushy job as well? Fantastic news.
0: Oh, it's not bad, Smithy. I'll tell you that. Um, it's definitely, like you say, it's a bit easier than when I used to race those sort of races. It's much nicer in a studio. Still getting used to the suit and tie, though, but um, no, it, it's good. I don't know how I landed it, honestly. I think I just got lucky. <laughs> I, started a, I started a podcast with George Bennett, another cyclist, when we were in lockdown and COVID, and I think someone listened to that, and that was enough to get my foot in the door.
1: Well, Sam, you're obviously very good at what you do, but uh, I also want to talk to you a wee bit about your role as the DS as well, because tell us what that entails. I've I've seen a clip of you in action, and I, I just want to need to know more about how it came about and what it entails in terms of team cycling.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite a cool job, actually, and when I, I was still racing up until the end of last year, but I knew I was going to retire at the end of last year, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I, I was definitely keen to stay involved in cycling and, and being a, a DS is kind of like, it's kind of a natural progression for a lot of a lot of retired pros. Um, and I'm really, so I've only been doing it for seven months, but I'm really sinking my teeth into it, really enjoying it. It's just about working with people, creating strategies. Um, and that's that's what the coolest thing about the job is for me, is working with, with people, creating strategies, creating relationships, and basically just sort of in some ways leading the way to create a to create a successful team. And I guess if you boil it down to the Tour de France, it's basically the person who's driving the car behind the riders, who's talking to them on the radio and trying to be adaptable, trying to come up with scenarios where where like in, in Yonis know, finger go today Pogac's situation, where they can get rid of their rival, how they can win the Tour de France. So it's a it's a job I'm still I'm still learning, but I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. And it's it's just nice to be around around the races as well and around the guys after so many years. Would have been tough to retire from pro cycling and then end up doing something completely removed from it. So, really enjoying still being in the scene.
1: So what we probably don't understand, uh, particularly those people that um, are tuning in and watching the Tour de France for the first time, or that's their thing every year, um, Sam, is, is the, the team aspect of it. Um, and, and of course, is, you know, we, we look at the yellow jersey and, and you know, uh, you know, those people that are leading the various qualifications of the Tour de France with their different coloured jerseys, uh, but we don't quite understand the team nature of it.
0: Well, it's the most important part of it and especially when you look at this year's Tour de France, like it's it's just crazy that we're we're nearly sixteenth, so we're about to start the sixteenth stage in a few hours' time and, and, and those top two guys are separated by ten seconds, which is which is uncommon, but um and then and that's why the, those two guys are the, are the the members of their team that have been sent there to try to win the Tour de France and the seven other riders that are in their team with them have been sent to the Tour de France to have no ambitions for themselves, to not even worry about w- what result they get in the stage or in the overall race of the Tour de France. They're there just purely to, to aid and look after their team leader and try to try fo- to help them win the Tour de France. And this is a perfect example of how important it is to have a, a strong team because these two top guys, Vingago and Pogaccio, they, they can't be separated. and And they've been trying to separate from each other, but they just can't do it. So it creates a really exciting last week of the Tour de France and it's going to bring into play the team so much because ultimately if they, if they can't separate each other physically the only way they're going to separate each other is by strategy and by team tactics and using their, their seven riders that are there to help them to set up a situation where they can eventually fight try to find some time on their rivals so it, it's a really exciting race this year and and the, those two teams have been dominating the race are certainly the two strongest teams in the race and uh, they need to find a way to use their use their team and use their strengths to get rid of one rider or the other.
1: The, and the other thing that's happening in Europe and parts of Europe at the moment, Sam, is is a, a massive heat wave. I mean, we're getting stories about it back here in New Zealand uh, on a nightly basis. So, is that affecting them?
0: For sure. And I mean, it's it's not uncommon at the Tour de France. Obviously, it's it's July in in France. It's the middle of summer. Um, so it's it's traditionally it's traditionally hot. But it, it, it plays a big a big role and and thankfully, like like anything in in, in the world, it's, cycling is evolving and people are getting more knowledgeable about um, protocols around keeping keeping the riders cool, and and you can only do so much. I mean, ultimately, you still have to go out there and ride your bike for anywhere from four to six hours and 35 to 40 degree temperatures. But the science, the science has come a long way with the cooling protocols and we see it in a lot of other sports as well with the ice vests and, uh, and cycling, we use what we call ice socks, which is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's just a sock with some ice in it that you put on your back to try to keep cool, uh, Today, Pogaccio, who's sitting second in the Tour de France at the moment, he even has a van that drives around and is at the finish line of every stage that has an ice bath in it. So he's finishing the stages and hopping straight into an ice bath. So it's, it's definitely a, a challenge to, to combat the heat, and some riders are better in it than others. Um, but thankfully, you know, the evolution of the sport's allowed, allowed the riders to have a little bit more access to protocols that can help, help them at least handle it a little bit better.
1: Uh, There's a time trial coming up, uh, of course, Sam, from uh, Passy to Cornblue. I I just wonder, is is this a stage uh, where they could find some separation? How does the the time trial work as such?
0: Um, I guess it's the the one, we've just been speaking about the team, the teams, but um, I guess it's the one stage of the 21 that is only about the individual. there's There's no teams out there with you, you're just out there by yourself racing against, basically trying to get from A to B faster than anybody else. And, uh, you know, traditionally the time trials and the field of France have been quite decisive in separating the the top guys. I think that this year, man, it's, it's like separate them at your own peril. These guys are just so close and and I kind of hazard a guess that at the end of the time trial, uh, later on today or tomorrow, wherever you are in the world, um, I, I hazard a guess that the time gap's not going to be much different. I think there's a chance that it could swing the other way. Pogacar could be in front of Vingigo on the overall classification by the end of the time trial. But I think it would be by a very, very small margin. So it's just going to be another stage that, you know, there will be some time gaps between those two guys. How big it's going to be, I don't know, but I suspect not much. Um, and that's just going to set up an exciting final week of the Tour de France because there's some big, there's still some big mountain stages to come.
1: Yeah, well, one of those is, uh, of course, the Col de la Loss. Uh, that is a 2,304-metre climb, and uh, Pagasha himself has uh, basically said uh, he thinks this will be the day.
0: Yeah, it's going to be the decisive day, no doubt about it. It's, it's just a monster, that climb, and like you say, it, it goes to you know the top of that climb at 2,300 metres, so that also starts to come into play. We spoke about the heat just now. It's, it's going to be hot, I'm sure. Um, but the altitude as well it's it's such a different game when you're trying to race your bike full gas at that sort of altitude you're obviously the air is a lot thinner up there it's a bit harder to recover when you make an effort so the guys have to be a little bit smarter with how they how they gauge their effort how they attack when they when they really want to put the power in because if you if you try to get away from if, if one of the riders tries to get away from the other guy and, and can't do it and he's made a big effort to do so you just don't recover like you do down at the lower level, lower altitude Um, lower elevation so uh, it's going to be decisive and it's just and the climb itself even removing the altitude it's just a monster it's a long climb it's a steep climb and there's a small descent once they get to the top it's a small descent into the finish in Courchevel which which if they if one of the guys has a small gap over the top of that climb you can kind of open up the gap pretty quickly on that descent so no doubt that stage is going to be the most decisive of the race Uh, I guess we call it the queen stage what they say in cycling terms uh, and then stage twenty as well is also is also a stage that provides a lot of opportunities if one of the guys needs to find some time.
1: Sam, we've all seen the photos of what happened uh, when the fan. I'd li- I would call him a, an idiot, but uh, here's the thing: he took a selfie, brought down half the field, which is a, absolute calamity. But when you look at the Tour de France over the years. Uh, one of their little idiosyncrasies is those narrow lanes that the fans tend to produce for the cyclist to go up almost a single lane thing. Um, what can they do about that, if anything?
0: then Where that crash was the other day with that fan taking a selfie, you can't really do anything in those situations because basically you, just gotta, you have to call them an idiot and hope they hear you <laughs> because the, it's just ridiculous that they... The fans like that are just irresponsible and, and I'm sure they're excited about what's happening and they sort of lose their minds a little bit. But on that section of road, it was kind of in a place where they were just passing through a small village and these, these stages are, are, you know, 180 kilometres long. You can't put barriers and fences up for 180 kilometres. You just kind of have to plead and hope that the, the fans have a little bit of respect and a little bit of smart to know not to put their hand or put their phone out in the middle of the peloton um and it's it's really it's really hard to combat that and like you say we've seen it multiple times in the tour de france it happens every year which is a real shame but i think there's other other situations where they go up those mountains which are really really narrow roads and then you get at times hundreds of thousands of people on those on those climbs and with, like you say we've seen the images it creates just a, a tiny little corridor for the riders to get through and and that that's pretty scary like as much as it's fun and the atmosphere is, is cool and it's, it's such a unique sport that you can have that much that much access to the athletes it is a bit scary because at any moment you could get your handlebar clip from from somebody and on those climbs you can probably do things about it i think at least once you get towards the top you could put some fences up or or even just some ropes or i know in in the race in italy the giro d'italia the grand tour there and tour of italy they just have hundreds of police basically who just create like a human chain uh, so there's, there are things you can do I think the other day there was a bit of an incident at in the top of the climb where the fans were there were so many fans that the two motorbikes in front of the of Pogacar and Vingago couldn't get couldn't get through and then the riders basically rode at the back of the motorbikes um, so in that situation they, they could have had some ropes up or some fences up or I mean there's always the option to close the top of the climbs to fans as well but then that's sort of taken away from what's so unique and cool about our sport so there's things that there's sort of there's things that you can do, I'm sure, but um, ultimately it's just about people having a bit of smarts about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to do when they're watching a bike race. Sam,
1: one of the interesting things as well uh, about this bike race in particular is the the last stage, as such, into the Champs Elysees, uh, which is a tradi- traditional finish for the Tour de France. Uh, I just uh, wonder tell us a wee bit about that because it seems like it, it basically is just a ride in the park very good natures etc has it ever been a competitive stage
0: uh, it, it is a competitive stage it's kind of it's a it's a funny dynamic to explain because it's kind of like a, a, it's actually really, really hard racing because in a, in a lot of ways, people have kind of switched off because they've, they've reached the finish of the Tour de France. They've probably had a few beers the night before, so they might have a bit of a headache. But it's kind of just, it's just not a race for the overall classification anymore. So although it officially is a race, it's just a gentleman's agreement, basically, that nobody would attack the yellow jersey or try to take the, or try to win the overall Tour de France on that stage. Whatever the time gap is, whether it's one second or one minute, between first and second, when they get to that stage, it's kind of accepted that it stays like that, and you don't try to do anything else. You don't try to attack the rider, but it's still a, it's still a it's the most prestigious stage for a sprinter to win. It's it's essentially the the world champs of of bunch sprints. So it's it's a stage that's for the fast guys, which we see every year, just a full bunch sprint. But to win that stage um, as a sprinter is, is is the biggest thing you can win it in cycling. So it's it's the most prestigious. It, although it's not a race for the overall classification, it's the most prestigious r- stage you can win as a sprinter. So, it's still a full gas race, and they they spend 40 or 50k riding into into the centre of Paris there, and that's where they, you see all the photos of them drinking champagne and everything. And that's that's not really a race; it's essentially just an extended neutral period of the race. But as soon as they hit the city of Paris, it's it's on, and it's it's not easy. You, you get a lot of guys still suffering around that around the Champs Elysees. Don't worry about that.
1: Hey, uh, of interest uh, to us in New Zealand, of course, has been uh, Corbin Strong uh, out of uh, Invercargill. Uh, I just wonder, uh, have you been able to monitor monitor his process? He hasn't been uh, anywhere near the the front too often. But uh, how's his performance?
0: No, he's good, Corbin. He's um, it, it was sort of. It's his, first, it's his first time doing the Tour de France, but it's also the first time he's done any any Grand Tour. So there's, there's Tour of Spain, Tour of France, and Tour of Italy all three weeks long, and he hasn't done any of them yet. So it's a new experience for him to race for such a long period, for, to race for three weeks. Um, and he's only a young guy. So the, the Tour de France this year was about two things. It was, you know, Firstly, it was about getting experience, uh, learning his body, learning how he can manage a, a three-week stage race, but also he, the team had ambitions for him to to get some good results, and es- especially in the first part of the race, there were some stages that suited him, and ultimately, he's, he's a young guy that's still learning, uh, learning the sport, learning himself, but he's actually one of the most talented bike riders that New Zealand's ever seen, and it's always a big, you know, it's easy to say that when when they're young, but i genuinely believe that he has the ability to win some of the biggest bike races in the world over the next five or ten years he's just young he's just learning still um and the tour de france is a really important part but he's handling it well he, he's he's obviously getting tired now like everybody else but um he's handled the race well and he'll have no problem getting through to paris and he'll come away from that with a lot of a lot of lessons learnt, and it'll stand him in good stead for the future but He's definitely a, as a Kiwi. He's definitely someone you should be following because he's he's definitely got the ability to win some big bike races.
1: Sam, can you pick it for us? Can you can you see anything <laughs> in these two riders that for you uh, separates them? I mean, you know, if we had a, a, had five bucks to put on one, wh- who would you recommend to put it that way?
0: Well, they're probably both paying about a dollar one at the tab, aren't they? So you wouldn't get much for your five bucks, but. <laughs> um, Oh, it's so hard to separate these guys. At the start of the Tour de France, I, when someone asked me the same question, I said Jonas Vingegaard would win. So I'll stick with that for now. I think I think he's today. Pogac is probably the best bike rider in the world, but um, Jonas Vingegaard is one of the is maybe the best Grand Tour rider in the world. It's quite a specific discipline, um, and I think the time trial is going to suit him, uh, and the, and certainly their de hours, like we spoke about in a couple of days' time. So. If guns comes my head, I'll say Jonas Vingegaard go, is going to win.
1: The two is in good shape. I mean, it's not just, you know, in the years coming forward, I mean, these guys uh, obviously are not going to flag it at the end of this. But in terms of going forward, I mean, we see the Yates brothers out of Britain, um, uh, a good, strong contingent of Australian riders, et cetera. Rodriguez from Spain currently sitting third in the general classification. You think the race is in good shape going forward to be more competitive?
0: Yeah, sure. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And a lot of those guys that you mentioned, like Rodriguez, who's sitting third, he's only he's super young as well. He's only twenty one or twenty two years old. So these guys are the future of the sport. And typically in, in in cycling, ten years ago, you you wouldn't you wouldn't perform at the Tour de France until you were closer to thirty. Now they're doing it when they're closer to twenty years old. So uh, the the future is pretty bright. And we've also there's also a couple of other other guys that aren't at the Tour de France, Remco Ivnepool, who's a Current world champion, superstar out of Belgium, and he's he's only twenty two years old, twenty three years old as well. Uh, so once he joins the Tour de France again, which I'm pretty sure he'll do next year, it's going it's just going to get even. It's going to get bigger and better. And we see these two guys, Pagaccio and Winger, go fighting it out this year, the top for the for the top spot. But you chuck Remco even a pull in there. You chuck Primoz Roglic, who won the Tour of Italy this year, and there you give Rodriguez another year or two to get develop a little bit more. It's it could be the the next. 10 years of the of the Tour de France it could be the most exciting and most competitive like we've had guys dominate Tour de Frances before but that's almost less exciting than seeing what we're watching this year
1: Fantastic Sam, absolutely great folks you can uh, watch Sam's fine work on the NBC Sports Cycling on Beyond the Podium with his review and previews of uh, the various stages, <laughs> Sam it's been great to catch up with you, absolutely fantastic uh, sound great, uh, doing a great job and uh, we'll talk again soon, eh? thank you
0: Cool, thank you very much mate